Good to worship with you today. If you're new here, my name is Fred. I'll be preaching the word and excited to get into 1 John together. But real quick, couple quick announcements. VBS is coming up. I know many of you have already stepped up to volunteer and help out with that. Thank you. If you do want to get signed up to help but haven't yet, please let us know. There's a table, there's an orange table in the fellowship area where you can uh, get signed up or we also, if you can't serve that week, but you want to help some way, we have some little slips of paper that have different items that we need donated for VBS. And so if you wanna take one or two of those, just bring those items back with you uh, in the next week or two, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, our Malawi team is uh, seeking to raise a little bit of money for our trip coming up at the end of July. And so we're gonna do a hoagie fundraiser. And so if you want to have a nice homemade Italian hoagie for lunch, um, we have a sign up. I forget the date. I should have wrote it down, but I think somewhere around June 25th uh, is the pickup day. And so those will be right here at the church. So between now and then, if you can order your hoagies, we'll provide those on the 25th for you. And that will help us tremendously as we go to minister uh, to the folks there in Malawi. We've been talking to our partners uh, over there the last few weeks and just a lot of excitement building for this trip. We're gonna go and have a lot of great gospel ministry opportunities. And so please keep us in prayer. Uh, there's uh, a lot to be done between now and the end of July when we leave. So we would love your prayers. And uh, if you can support us through the Hoagie Fundraiser, that would be great as well. With that said, let's go to 1 John chapter 2. We are in probably what's the most difficult passage in the letter of 1 John. And uh, as, I, as I put this message together, I was just really wrestling with some of the things that are, that are in here. But as, as I spent more and more time in it, as the Holy Spirit usually does, uh, I began to really love this passage. And so I'm excited to share it with you today. I'm gonna read uh, from chapter two, verse 28 through chapter three, verse 10. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. It reads, so now little children remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins and there is no sin in him. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the devil's works. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. 
Would you pray with me? Father, as we consider this difficult passage, difficult from a perspective of we who sin, we who recognize uh, that what is declared in this passage is not always true of us. And so we ask for your help. We ask that you would give us wisdom, give us insight into your truth this morning. Help us to understand this passage in the context of John's entire message in the letter of 1 John. Help us to apply it to our lives in a way that we would become more like you and and glorify you in how we live our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The challenge of this passage is that John seems to state pretty clearly that the the one who is in Christ, the, the believer, cannot and does not continue to sin. The reason that's a problem is because I don't know a single Christian who cannot and does not sin. The problem of ongoing sin in the Christian life has already been brought up in this this letter. In fact, in the beginning, John says, if we say we don't sin, we are a liar. And therefore, he tells us to confess our sins so so that God, who is righteous and just, might graciously forgive us. And so which is it? Is it that the believer sins and needs to continually confess and repent of sin and receive forgiveness? Or is it, as, we, as was implied in this passage, the believer cannot and does not sin? That's a problem. It's a problem not because John did not have this settled in his mind. It's a problem because we're struggling to understand what he meant. This is, this is the challenge of biblical interpretation. How do we understand John's intentions in this passage? Well, those who study these things and write the commentaries offer a number of solutions, and there were at least two that I think were fairly satisfying. One, when John says the believer does not and cannot sin, he's, he's saying that the believer does not continue in habitual sin does not persist in sin, that unlike before we came to Christ when we just sinned and it was easy, now we sin and we, our, our conscience is pricked and we repent and we come back to God. That is suggesting that it's a sign of a true believer that you are not comfortable to go on living in sin. The other possibility, and that first possibility has some grammatical support for it, but the one that I find most appealing is that, that John is speaking about the ideal. He's, he's speaking about the way things should be and he's calling us to that standard. He's calling us to strive to defeat sin in our lives. He's calling us to wage war against the sin in our lives that is in conflict with who we are in Christ. This is an age-old, ongoing battle for those who follow Christ. How do we respond to the sin that remains in our lives? How do we respond to the fact that we have been forgiven, we have been born again, we have a new identity in Christ, and yet we find it so easy to to sin? One of the... 
one of the um, things that really helped me as I, as I considered this, what helped me in the way that it helped me realize I wasn't alone, <laughs> and, and that has limited value, but it does have some value. John Piper, a pastor, a well-respected pastor, um, somebody I've always enjoyed listening to and, and following, um, he was being interviewed one time, and in the interview, he had recently lost a grandchild, if I remember correctly, uh, unexpectedly, and they're talking about suffering, and how do you know, how, how can you have such confidence that there's a good God when such terrible things happen? And the interviewer asked him something akin to, what makes you doubt God's existence the most? And John Piper's answer was not that children die or that bad things happen. His answer was that when he, he said, when I consider the slowness of my own sanctification. What he was saying was when I, when I look at myself and I see how, how much sin continues to persist in my life. In, in, in other words, Piper is saying that if there is a God, why do I struggle so much to overcome sin? I can relate to that. And my guess is you can relate to that as well. So we have here in this passage, John's gonna use two, two divine events. One of them historical, another a, a future event. He's going to use these two divine events to motivate, remember he's, he's writing to believers. He's writing to those who've accepted Christ who have believed in him for salvation, who have been born again, who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, and he's writing to them. He wants to motivate them to fight against sin. Too often, Christians, I mean, think about this. If in the first century, just decades after the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, just, de I mean, historical events like the, like the ministry of Jesus Christ tend to affect each succeeding generation a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less. For example, my, my grandparents uh, lived through the Great Depression. And as a result, for the next 60 to 70 years, they had this Great Depression mindset. They saved everything. They wasted nothing. They stockpiled necessary items in their basement for the rest of their lives because of one great depression. And I noticed my parents did that a little bit less. I do that a little bit less. So when you think about the generation that experienced, that was alive during Jesus's earthly ministry, you would expect them to be the most impacted and yet by the end of the first century, just decades after Jesus' earthly ministry, John is having to write to Christian believers and tell them not to be apathetic towards their sin. So it should come as no surprise to us that there is a battle within us to either cozy up to and get comfortable with sin and just claim grace and just say, well, this is why Jesus died. I'm forgiven in him. Nobody's perfect. We're all sinners. So I'm just gonna, you know, whatever. 
Or do we see sin as the enemy of our souls and the enemy of the work that God wants to do in us and through us, and do we wage war? So John points to two divine events. He, he points to the first coming of Jesus, and he says because, because of the first coming of Jesus, we ought to wage war against sin in so many words. And then he's going to point to the second coming of Jesus, a future event which has yet to happen, and say because Jesus is coming again, we ought to wage war against sin. And so let's go ahead and look at these two these two events and how they motivate us to fight against sin. If you have the handout in front of you, the first statement on the handouts, I'm gonna take them in the historical order. I'm gonna go first with the first coming of Christ and then we'll talk about the second coming of Christ. The first thing you see on the handout is this. Because he came, we must ruthlessly wage war against the sin in our lives. We have an obligation because Jesus came, because God the Father and God the Son conspired together from before time began to rescue you from the penalty of your sin by sending the Son to come to leave behind glory, to leave behind his eternal joy and peace and security and to come and to live as a fragile man, able to experience death, able to experience suffering and physical affliction. Because he did that and he died on the cross for us, we have this obligation now to wage war against the sin in our lives. This is what John wants us to receive as motivation. And he gives a number, number of reasons. He says, first of all, that sin is lawlessness. You'll see that on the handout next. Sin is described in this passage as lawlessness. Verse four, he, he says, everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. I don't, I don't know how that word hits you. Maybe it hits some of us differently, but when I hear of lawlessness, I almost think of freedom. I almost think, oh yeah, you know, we're like, we live in a society that it has so many laws that lawlessness almost sounds enticing. It almost sounds good until I, I stop and really think about what lawlessness is and what lawlessness means in the context of divine law-giving, every law is intended to protect us. Every law is intended to help us flourish and experience life. Lawlessness is the opposite of what is good for us. You experience a little bit of this when you raise children because you have to, you have to teach children the value of rules, you have to teach children the value of laws or of obeying commands. And, and when they're young, they don't, they don't understand that. Uh, you know, why, why do we call it the terrible twos? It's because at that age, they seem to, to just reject every command, rule, guideline, and law that you give them. 
They, they make it their mission from the time they wake up in the morning till the time they fall asleep exhausted from torturing you all day. They make it their mission to obey no laws. Don't touch that, it's hot. Okay, I'm gonna go touch that. Be careful on those steps you might fall. Okay, I'm just gonna go flop down these steps. Everything, be careful with that, it's sharp. Oh, let me see how sharp it is. That's, That's lawlessness. Lawlessness is rejecting the, the guidelines that are in place to provide protection and health and an environment to flourish. What is sin? It's lawlessness. It's saying, it's, it's having a, a loving God who wants your best and saying to him, I'm not gonna do what you say. And, you know, whatever you say, I'm gonna do the opposite. That is lawlessness. That's sin, and that's what we do. That's, what, that's how we live our lives. God says, don't do this. Well, ah, why? Why should I not do that? Let me find out. And we go, and we find out, and we go, oh, that law existed for a reason. So John says, everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, he gives us another reason why we should wage war against sin. Next thing you see on the handout is that Jesus came to take away sin. Jesus came to take away sin. Verse five says, you know that he was revealed. This is in reference to his first coming. He was revealed so that he might take away sins and there is no sin in him. Why did Jesus come? What did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus? There is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Jesus was revealed. God was, was, was made incarnate. He came to earth. He, was, he lived among us in order to take away sin. Sin has wreaked havoc on God's creation. It has corrupted everything that is good. It is destroying forever the lives of the people that God created in his own image. And so Jesus came to take it away, to get rid of it. So to sin is to bring back in what Jesus came to take away. Sin is... is is undoing the work that Jesus came to do. Jesus came and he gave his life. He, he spilt his precious blood. The son of God died on a bloody cross to take away our sin. And we so casually undo what he came to do. That ought to make us think twice. Next time you're contemplating whether to sin or not, next time you're contemplating some blatant sin in your life, remember that if you do that thing, you are undoing what Jesus came to do. I don't mean in the sense that we are making void his work because that could never happen but we are working against. It's like, you're in a, it's like you're in a boat that has a hole in it and somebody's got a bucket and they're, and they're 
getting the water out and they're getting the water out and you're there in the back of the boat and you got a bucket and you're scooping water out of the lake and you're putting it back in and you're scooping, like you're working against what Jesus is trying to do in your life. You're working against the work that he came to do. He came so that sin would stop killing you. So that sin would stop separating you from the God who created you. So that sin would, would no longer wreak havoc in your relationships with other people. And we just keep undoing what he's doing. John goes on. He, he says another reason that we should not sin. These are my words, not his. I'll read his words in a minute. But on the handout, my words, sin weakens our witness. It, it weakens our witness to what God has done in our lives. Here's John's words. This is how he says it. He says, everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. He's, he's kind of touching on something that I think, I think everybody understands. If you're a Christian, you should do good things. The watching world expects that if you're going to name the name of Christ, if you're going to profess to be a follower of Christ, the watching world expects you to live like it. And when we, when we sin, especially blatantly, publicly, openly around non-believers, it continues to weaken our witness. They say, see? Now, don't get me wrong. You're not gonna be perfect. You're gonna sin in front of other people. That's gonna happen. And when you do, that's an opportunity to demonstrate the gospel by asking for their forgiveness and expressing sorrow over your sin. I think this is especially important that we do this at home with our own kids or with our spouses, but it's also important that we do this publicly. If you sin publicly at work, if you lose your cool at work and you act in an in a unchristian way, then you have a responsibility to go back to those people and say, I'm sorry, I should not have done that. Will you forgive me? And seek to make amends for any damage that you have caused. It's not enough to go and, and secretly ask Jesus for forgiveness for your sins. If you've sinned publicly, then, then you ought to go and apologize publicly. And that, in, in the long run, can, can, can rebuild our witness oh, this person's not perfect. Maybe if I come to Christ, I don't have to be perfect, but I wanna be committed to, to living a life of repentance when I sin. But ultimately, sin weakens our witness. How many, how many testimonies have been destroyed by the uncovering of some secret sin? How many, how many times have, have non-believers in your life used that against your witness to the gospel? Well, what about so-and-so? They said they were a Christian and look, they were doing this and they were sleeping with some, somebody else and all this kind of stuff. It weakens our witness and we have to care about our witness. Finally, under the, the first coming of Christ and perhaps the most shocking is this, to sin is to do the devil's work. 
to sin is to actually do the devil's work. Not only are you undoing what Jesus came to do, you are simultaneously doing what Satan came to do. This is how John says it, excuse me. Verse eight, the one who commits sin is of the devil. That's hard, That's, that's pretty strong. He says, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the devil's works. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed, that means the work of God in your life, the, the, the fruit of the gospel, his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. You'll see here, John, John talks constantly in this letter about love, right? And love for God and love for our brother and sister. So he singles out that behavior, but don't miss what he's saying here. The one who commits sin is of the devil. Why? What is, why would you say that, John? What do you mean by that? He says, well, you're doing his work. You're doing what the devil came to do. We said this a couple of weeks ago. The world, what we call the, the world, the system that, of this world that is opposed to God is led by Satan, but the majority of the work is carried out by human beings. The majority of, of Satan's work is not being done by Satan personally. It's being done by willing participants among humanity who sin and do his work for him. Satan loves it when you sin. Even, if, even in the small ways, even if it's just a little bit of gossip, a little bit of anger, a little bit of pride, he loves it. You're doing his work. You're making his job easy. John wants us to use this as motivation. Jesus came. He came to, to bring order to this lawless world. He came to take away sin. He came that we might have a testimony or a witness for the watching world. He came to destroy the devil's work. So wage war against sin. Hate the sin in your life. Christians need to hate Sin. It ought to make us miserable to think that we so easily do what Satan came to do and what Jesus came to undo. It, it ought to send us running to the gospel. Running to the gospel for the forgiveness that only Jesus can give. We are far too comfortable in our sin. But John does not only point back to the first coming of Jesus, he points ahead to the second coming of Jesus. You'll see on the handout, the second section says this, because he is coming again, we must persevere in following him. All of this talk about sin and, and our need to fight against it, it, it demands that we embrace the idea of perseverance. Defeating sin is not a one-time thing in your life. It's not something we're gonna fix today. I wish I could say, just come to the altar when, when we're done preaching here. And if you come forward, sin is gonna be defeated in your life. You're not gonna have to deal with it anymore. Wouldn't that be awesome? 
That's not what's gonna happen. You're gonna have to persevere. You're gonna have to fight day in and day out. And so you're gonna need some motivation. And your motivation is Jesus came and Jesus is coming again. He gives us some specific reasons to persevere. First he says, or the first thing you see on the handout under this section is persevere so you won't be ashamed. Persevere so you won't be ashamed. We're talking about at Jesus' coming here. Just as Jesus came the first time, there will be another historical event. It will actually happen in human history. It'll actually, there'll, there'll be real living, living human beings alive at Jesus' return. And it might be us. Or it might be another generation. We don't know. But one way or another, Jesus is going to return. And John says to, his, to, to the people he's writing to, he says, so now, little children. And John is old at this point. He's, most people think he's probably in his 80s, okay? So everyone's little children, you could be 65 years old, and to John, you're little children, all right? So he, this is just a term of affection. So now, little children, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If Jesus were to return right now, would you be excited to see him? I mean, this would be pretty good timing because we're in church, so at least we have that going for us. <laughs> but what if he had returned last night? What if he returns Tuesday in the middle of the day? Is, is, is there like a time when you would rather he return? Why? What do you have to be ashamed of? And whatever it is that you have to be ashamed of, stop doing that. Live so that you will, you, will be, you will rejoice at his appearing and not have to be ashamed. Furthermore, we're not just, it's not just that we might be ashamed because of the timing of his return, but the bigger picture is that we might be ashamed because of how we have lived our whole lives. We have not lived our lives for the gospel the way we could have. And this could bring shame. I think about this fairly often. I don't know if it's a good thing to think about or not, but I think about the saints. I think about, let me say brothers and sisters. The Bible uses the word saints to refer to all believers. Okay? I think about brothers and sisters in Christ who are in heaven are, they're, the cost that they paid to follow Christ in comparison to mine. I think about people in countries that are very hostile to Christianity, people who lose their jobs, who lose their lives, people whose, whose homes are plundered, whose families are sinned against in horrific ways, all because they follow Christ. And I think, I gotta stand next to them in heaven. There are gonna be people who were beheaded for the gospel. And I gotta stand next to them and live with them for eternity. And I think, man, 
I don't want to show up and be like, you know, they're, they're, they're standing there and they're like holding their head, you know, over here. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sure it's back on. <laughs> but, but they got like this big scar, right? And I'm like, was that too much? I'm sorry if that was too much. I don't want to be standing there and like, you know what? Somebody said something mean to me on Facebook because I posted a Christian meme. Like it's, it's ridiculous. There, we, you have brothers and sisters in Christ who are paying with their lives to follow Christ. They're giving up everything. Being ashamed at his coming isn't just being caught in a bad moment. It's, have you lived your life for the gospel to the fullest? And yet, look, not everybody's called to die for their faith. But we are called to live faithful lives for the gospel. Did you do the best with the life that you were given? That's what matters. It's all relative, I suppose, but that's what matters. Did we, did we live lives that we don't have to be ashamed? You don't wanna get to heaven and say, I just barely made it. Because that's not gonna be cool in heaven. What's, what's going to be admirable? What's going to be praiseworthy in eternity is those who gave up everything that they could for the sake of the gospel. So let's persevere so we won't be ashamed. Next on the handout, perseverance is befitting our identity. It's, it's consistent with who we are. If we are in Christ, that's a, that's a phrase you ought to study in scripture. What does it mean to be in Christ? And if we are in Christ, then perseverance ought to be just second nature to us. It ought to, it ought to be one of the attributes of our lives. John says in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children? And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. We're supposed to stand out. We're supposed to look different. The world is supposed to think we are odd and we are strange because of our perseverance against sin. Not just because we're odd and strange, but for good reason. Because of our relationship to sin looks different than theirs. That's our identity. If we are God's children, what in the world are God's children doing, doing the work of the devil? What in the world are God's children doing, taking sin so lightly? Why are we not waging war against the sin in our lives? We belong to him. He has placed, he has placed his name on us. Enough. <clears throat> well, maybe save that illustration for another time. We have an identity in Christ that we want to live up to. 
Jesus persevered. Jesus was faithful in the face of sin. Let's make it our aim to live befitting of that identity. Finally, the last point you see on the handout is that perseverance prepares us for what we will become. Perseverance prepares us for what we will become. You're not always going to be like you are now. The goal of the Christian life should be to incrementally be transformed to become prepared for what you are going to become. Verse two, dear friends, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet been revealed. There is some mystery to this. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We're God's children now. That's reason enough to persevere against sin, right? But we don't know exactly what we'll be. We have questions about what that looks like. Many of those questions are answered, but by John's own admission here, there are things we don't know, but we do know this. When he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. The power of witnessing Jesus in his glory, the power of that to transform us into something else is worth meditating on, is worth reflecting on, is worth thinking about. There's coming a day when at his appearance, we will be transformed. But again, the, the, the application of this, John says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, prepares himself, gets himself ready for that moment, for that day when we will become like him. Think of the illustration that the Bible often draws on as a bride and a groom. And in, in the Bible, he, God is the groom and his church is the bride. It's a it's an illustration that admittedly causes some discomfort for us men, <laughs> but nonetheless, it works if we, if we don't push it too far. Um, the reason that that illustration is helpful is because brides go to extreme lengths to prepare for their weddings. Grooms, not so much. <laughs> Grooms, you're, like, you're lucky if you marry a guy who you can get to show up to have his tux fitted you're doing pretty good. Like that's, that's about all you can expect, right? And don't push that illustration to Christ's preparation. But the bride, let's focus on the bride. The bride prepares herself. This is a months long process of preparation that affects her diet, that affects her workout routine, that affects her life in every sphere. And she gets herself ready. She has tanning appointments and makeup appointments and hair appointments and dress fitting appointments. And she does all of this to make herself ready. And that is what, when the Bible speaks of us as the bride of Christ, that is the expectation that we are preparing ourselves. How do we prepare ourselves? We prepare ourselves by purifying ourselves, 
by waging war against the sin in our lives. We make ourselves pure so that when he appears, we will be prepared. We will be ready to be made like him. Persevering against sin, we do this so we won't be ashamed. We do this because it's part of our identity and we do this so that we will be prepared for what we will one day become. Brother and sister in Christ, sin is your enemy. It's not your friend. Sin, sin requires perseverance, requires grit. Listen, there'll be plenty of, plenty of times, even in the rest of this letter, there'll be plenty of time to talk about how do we apply the gospel when we have sinned. There'll be plenty of time to talk about how thorough Jesus' grace and his forgiveness is. But for today, will you, just, will you just steep in this thought for a moment? Sin is the enemy of everything that God came to do in your life. And there are no small sins. They're all destructive. They all bring destruction to the work of God in your life. Would you commit with me to wage war against sin? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we began by confessing this as a difficult passage and I want to end the same. It's no easy task to wage war against sin. It's no easy task to convince our flesh to stop favoring sin. We need your help. The promise of the gospel is that the Holy Spirit would come and live in us. Holy Spirit, would you show yourself alive and well inside of us today? Raise our affections to be like that of our Savior, to hate sin, to love righteousness. Convince our minds, convince our hearts to love what is good and to hate what brings destruction to your work. I thank you that, that above all, Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty of our sin so that we might stand in the righteousness of Christ before you. Between now and then, would you help us to persevere? Help us to wage war against sin. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. We're gonna continue to worship together.